Welcome to the weekly retail politics podcast where we bring you one download at a time the best information about your government. I'm your host Jerry Shields and today we have a special Thanksgiving Day edition of the podcast focusing on the politics of Native America. My guest today is Kerry Hawk Lassard of Native American Lifelines, a federal program that provides health care services for inner city Native Americans. Hello, Kerry, and welcome to the podcast. Hey, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's get to it. Tell me, Kerry, the state of Native America right now in 2020. There's a very popular meme that's going around now in Indian country about how, um, you know, if people really insist on having uh, Thanksgiving get-togethers, it'll be a lot like the first one where someone oh. gives a communicable disease that kills everybody. So that's kind of where we are. Um, you know, so I, I just want to say um, to start off with that, you know, in speaking, I'm, I'm representing my um, my opinions, my thoughts as an urban um, American Indian woman. I'm not speaking for, for anybody else. So I, I just want to just provide that context uh, before I, I talk about the state of Native America. But, you know, with, with kind of everything that's going on in the country, I feel like since Standing Rock, um, we've had, um, we've mobilized better and, and things that have happened with um, Black Lives Matter um, have been the catalyst to help have our voices heard. And on the one hand, it's sad that our, our voices alone, alone haven't been enough. I mean, we've been talking about these issues for decades, but, um, you know, that kind of gave the needed push to to get our issues before people. So we've seen uh, more Native people being elected to state, local, and, and federal um, legislation, which is wonderful to see. People really, um, there, there are a lot of like get out the, mo the vote efforts to, you know, really mobilize the Native vote and help us understand why it's important to us to vote and, and what we're voting for. Um, and I, I just feel like there's, I don't know, this certain momentum in Indian country right now that that feels really good. And, and it feels maybe a little bit more sustainable um, in that it builds off of what happened in the 70s with the American Indian movement and, and then kind of fizzled out. So I hope that I'm right. I, ho I hope that it is sustainable. I'm fascinated with the history of Native Americans because of how our country mistreated them for so long. The estimate of how many Native Americans were wiped out in this country varies, but we can safely say it's in the millions. And someone uh, once called it America's Holocaust, which I don't believe a lot of Americans think about. Uh, like that. We often hear about the tragedy of slavery, but not many people talk about the country's um, horrid treatment of the people who were here first, which were the Native Americans. Why do you think that is? I think that's an interesting question, and it's one that uh, as an undergraduate in South Florida, I kind of had firsthand experience with, you know, just being around people in the uh, American Indian movement during my lifetime in a class, I mentioned that, you know, there were more Native lives lost during the Holocaust. And I referred to the genocide of our people as that. And um, there were some um, folks who are Jewish that really pushed back on using that word, that that word was a term that was just used, you know, for, for what happened to, to them. And so, you know, I, I think there's kind of a 
sensitivity to, to that. But I mean, the point is well taken. I, I did a presentation with a, a national artist. He's from the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. His name is Greg Deal. And one of the things that we did in our work together is sort of unpack the romanticism and stereotype that I think is really at the, the heart of your question on, on why people don't talk about the genocide and, and, you know, the culture loss of our people in that way. And, you know, there was a guy asking us a question and he said, you know, well, why don't you guys just get over it? And and I responded to him, you know, have you, would you ever ask Eli Wiesel to just get over the Holocaust? You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. Those things are really important in our history and understanding of who we are. So it's, it's something we definitely don't talk about. Um, I think I was sharing with you earlier that uh, one of my ancestors came from the, um, the Fort Peck Reservation in Montana and was brought from there to the Carlisle Indian Boarding School in the late 1890s and upon graduation came to Baltimore, worked, had a family, um, and, and died in 1898, Native Americans, American Indians didn't become citizens until 1924. So all of those things happened before Mantukashi was even uh, considered a citizen in his own homelands, you know, in the homelands of our people. So I think part of that is really obscured by the way that Native people have been presented in film and art and literature that we are a people that existed in the past and that we don't exist in a contemporary way. We've been re very reduced to kind of like the Plains Indian with the bonnet as the you know, sine qua non of all um, native people. And, and that really overlooks the great diversity of how we existed historically and how we exist now. So you know, to, to reduce, I guess, your question to one answer, I would think that I think people don't see us as real human beings. And, and so that really makes it hard to connect with the history. And if you think about it, if, if people, I, I think there's so much pushback right now in, in talking about or, or contending with slavery, because you have to admit that this isn't a perfect country, which most of us know is, but there are some that still struggle with that. And I think you would have to, to acknowledge that the land that you sit on belongs to a people that you completely decimated to build your country and people don't want to deal with that. That's my, that's my opinion. We try to focus on politics on this podcast, and another part of Native American history that has always perplexed me is how Native Americans were here first, and we've never had a Native American president or even many Native Americans politicians. Ben Nighthorse Campbell of Colorado, who you know was a U.S. Senator when I covered the chamber in the early 2000s, he was the only Native American member of Congress at that time and was the first U.S. Senator since the 1920s. Again, why do you think that is? You know, it's interesting. I, I was made aware recently, and I didn't know this, that um, President Hoover's vice president, um, was a Kaw descendant, um, Curtis. And this was in 1907 and it got me wondering, well, if native people weren't considered citizens, how could someone who wasn't a citizen ascend to that role? And I later understood that uh, Curtis was actually a descendant. So I, I guess if you were of mixed parentage, then maybe citizenship could have been conferred to you. But again, I, I think 
it's still the situation that we have second class status in our own homelands and 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 that that you know there has been a lot of structural racism and a lot of oppression that have really um, prevented people from engaging in the political process and then when people did engage like during the you know American Indian movement it was in a way that was was very outside um, the the norm I, I've had some relatives um, you know say that when they participate in those types of processes or when they vote that that is somehow uh, legitimizing colonialism, which is something they don't want to do. But, you know, as I, I said before, what I see now is there are more Native people entering elected office than ever. So there's um, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen, who's a citizen of Cherokee Nation, um, uh, Representative Cole, who I think is Chickasaw, but he's he, he might be Cherokee. Deb Holland, of course, and um, Sharice David, who are uh, in the House of Representatives. Peggy Flanagan uh, from the White Earth Ojibwe is Lieutenant Governor of Minnesota. Uh, Paulette Jordan and uh, Elisa uh, Martinez ran for office. Ruth Anna Buffalo is in the um, North Dakota House of Representatives, the, the State House, and then Tana Sanchez, who's Shoshone, is uh, in Portland, Oregon, where my daughter lives. So there are more Native people entering. And what's cool is there are more Native women, you know, who are are, are serving in these ways. And, and I think it's, you know, we have to look at the role that we, we play or the role that we can play. And, and you know, Native people, especially of a certain age, and we talk a lot about decolonizing and, you know, what does that look for us? We we are in this system. We're, we're not going to get outside of this system. And so I think working within it is really important. And I'm just so excited to see Native people um, understand that their position in politics really um, you know, it, it helps defend our sovereignty. It helps defend, you know, the, the rights that protect us. Like what's going on with the Anwar that, you know, Trump is now like in his last days opening up to leasing, you know, to, to completely like despoil that that area and impact the salmon for Alaska Native people. The first thing that he did when he took office was to sign off on the um, Keystone XL pipeline that goes through the reservations and, and really um, impacts the aquifers for Native people. So, you know, when we are in positions of power, we are able to, you know, exert pressure. And, and Deb Holland has certainly been very willing to do that uh, in, in her role. So I hope more of that continues. It was interesting um, because I just saw a documentary on Mankiller. What was Mankiller's first name? Well, my Mankiller, yeah. She's an urban Indian. Right. So she became the first Cherokee tribe leader. And it was a fascinating uh, documentary about her activism and i think it kind of speaks to your point that women are stepping up more in the native american community would you say that yeah i would definitely say that i mean i'm I'm not mark wayne mullen you know i, I think sometimes fights for space inside of the colon of the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and, and doesn't do a lot of advocacy for Native people, which is really disappointing. Why would uh, I, one of the facts that also um, kind of 
kind of caught my eye was that many Americans don't know the history of Native American service in the military. Uh, many Native Americans served in World War One and World War Two, and were in fact the largest serving minority group in the First World War. Why would someone want to serve a country that mistreated its people for so long? Why do you think that service um, was important to them? You know, it's it's interesting, and that's a question that I have often asked, and it's a topic that's it is controversial um, sometimes within Indian country, especially among younger people, for just that reason. Why would you support a system? Um, you know that that actively oppresses you, and you know so my my grandfather served in World War II in the Navy. Um, my husband served in the Air Force. He he and his uh, father, um, his family is uh, Mohawk from Kahnawake, and um, time and time what I've told is it's the land. You know it's not the government necessarily. It's it's the land that you're defending, and and for us. As Native people, again, I'm not speaking for all Native people, but maybe people in my family or people that I know who share this idea that, you know, that the land holds um, our our creation stories of of where we come from, and most of them, you know, are are tied to a specific place. Whether it's Wind Cave in South Dakota, that is the birthplace of the Lakota Oyate, or you know the Ohio River Valley was very important to the to the Shawnee or you know um, places in, in New York um, you know where you know the the first you know people came came to be um, the land it, it, we are the land and the land is us and so that is certainly worth defending. Um, we are very tied to our sacred places and our sacred places are here. And so I think that is something that has been important in the way people consider defending the land, even if perhaps they are not defending the government, if that makes sense. Very much so. Very much so. It's a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting thought and, 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 you know, feeling. I was recently reading the book, uh, The Heartbeat of Wounded Knee by David Truer, and he wrote how casino gambling in the early 80s was a game changer for the Native American population. And it was interesting how it came about. So back in 1972, a couple on a reservation received a $148 tax bill that they refused to pay, saying the government had no jurisdiction over reservations. Reservations. So they took the case all the way to the Supreme Court, which agreed with them and went even one step further, stating that the government had no jurisdiction over any activities on a reservation. So that just opened the floodgates to casino, casino gambling. And within 20 years, tribes across the nation were hauling in $26 billion a year, uh, more than in Las Vegas and Atlantic City combined. Has gaming made a difference uh, for Native Americans and particularly in the poverty rate among Native Americans? I wouldn't say that it's necessarily made a difference in the poverty rate. What I would say is it's it's got some good and, and bad aspects to it. You know, when I was going to undergrad in Florida, um, that was around the time that the Seminole started gaming and, you know, that created a lot of problems. So one of 
what like people have the misconception that if you're a tribal citizen you just get money from the government and that that's not true there are um it's called per cap just per capita which is basically let's say that you are an enrolled member or enrolled citizen of a tribe and your tribe has gaming uh the profits from that gaming and whatever enterprise the tribe has gets divided among all of the the enrolled citizens so you know you you might depending on how prosperous your tribe is that could really determine the amount of money that you you get from the tribe but one of my friends in undergrad uh was she was from a tribe in the pacific northwest and married a, a guy who was on tribal council at at seminole in in hollywood and um one of the things that was just distressing for her because she came from a very poor tribe that didn't have gaming is that you know now like the kids they weren't working and there were all these like payday lending things that kind of popped up where people could borrow against the per cap that they were going to get and it it just created a really unhealthy economic system there so i think though tribes especially some of the more newly recognized tribes or, or tribes that want to get federal recognition believe that gaming is going to solve all of their problems. But here on the East Coast, I've seen just the opposite. The Pamunkey tribe was recently federally recognized and kind of right out of the gate because, you know, I, I'm a contractor with the Indian Health Service. So, you know, I'm, I'm at the table for some of just the discussions, you know, with with federal recognition, you have access to certain things. You have access to HUD. You have access to health care. And unfortunately, the Pamunkey tribe completely prioritized gaming over um, health or housing. I had one person that I reached out to, to to provide support who was on tribal council tell me that, oh, well, we don't need IHS because everybody here has in insurance. And, and that's just you know, that the focus on gaming and nothing else was really distressing, but it, it also is tearing their community apart because the Pamunkey tribe, you know, one of the things that, you know, because tribes get to determine who is and who isn't a citizen. And so usually they have enrollment criteria. They can be blood quantum. So how much percentage of native ancestry do you have? And if it's below a certain point, they, they don't consider you eligible to enroll or tribes like the Pamunkey use a certain point in time and, and they chose to use a census um, that was taken after the tribe had a rule to basically expel anyone from the reservation who um, was black and native um, or had intermarried. And now that's really proven to be a problem that they are kind of um, restricting access to what they see as the potential windfall of a Richmond casino and, and the kind of wealth that people, you know, think that they'll have into tearing families apart, you know, saying that, you know, you're not valued in the, in the tribe. And, and so I think I tend to see the really ugly side of gaming and it's, it's unfortunate. So I think, you know, while it may have had some positives, it certainly hasn't changed the the dynamic of poverty writ large. Native people still are, are you know, in more desperate poverty than, you know, non-Hispanic whites, say. And um, it, it's just done a lot of damage in communities and torn families apart. And that's that's something that's just really sad to see because that's 
that is so far away from what our traditional values are. Money is so far away from that, and it's just sad to see. You serve in Baltimore, just a few dozen miles down the road from Washington, D.C., which had that national controversy over its football team's name. As you know, they were called the Redskins and have now changed the name to the Washington football team until they can come up with a new name. And that controversy was interesting to me because the owner, Dan Snyder, refused to change the name and only did so after being forced by commercial advertisers who said they would no longer support the team. So you're talking about money. Uh, Snyder was faced with the threat of losing money, and that was the only thing that resulted in him being willing to drop the name. What does that say about the nation's perception of Native Americans, even in this 21st century? I think that because a team name like that could exist in the shadow of our nation's capital, something that is a dictionary defined slur or, or something that refers the, the term redskin. Dan Snyder was uh, very industrious uh, or, you know, would pick and choose anthropological studies that supported to say, oh, well, you know, it, it just referred to the color of the skin when, you know, if you look back at treaties in Pennsylvania, so that, you know, the treaties for the Shawnee people refer to Shawnee as redskins and refer to the bounties placed on our heads as redskins. So redskin, you know, meaning a scout, meaning a kind of currency that if you turn those in to prove that you killed native people, um, that had economic value and and the highest value was placed on the the scalps of women and children because women you know cannot obviously create more native people and children you're kind of stopping them before they can reproduce so that that was a very hurtful word for us so the the fact that native people can say this is a problem you know this term is hurtful for us and and to be told well, that doesn't matter. Like your voice doesn't matter. Your opinion on how you feel doesn't matter. Um, you know, I try to think, you know, just in the current climate, just saying to someone, well, I, I don't care what your feelings are in the N word. I'm going to use it. I mean, that, that just, you know, it, it's unthinkable when you, when you kind of create that juxtaposition. But I think that that communicates to native people. This is, the low social status and the low social regard that society in general, but but also the government has for them. I'm a medical anthropologist and, and I am concerned with the issue of historical trauma. How does trauma impact the way that we have health now? And when you consistently tell a people that they are of no social value, that definitely has impacts on their their mental health, their physical well-being, you know, their their um substance abuse, just the, the the potential that they think that they have to become educated, to work, to do all of those things. So I think it, it has so many consequences. Now, the interesting thing about Dan Snyder is that the Washington, D.C. City paper did a, 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 an article about him. And on the cover, I can't recall whether it was like words or images, but he felt that it was anti-Semitic. And he sued or threatened to sue the paper. 
And I found that interesting that he is very aware of and very in touch with his own personal pain around his identity, but basically was like flipping the bird to native people who said the same. So that, that told me everything that I needed to know about him. That's fascinating. I, I, I didn't know that story. That, that is very, very fascinating. Uh, most Americans believe that all Native Americans live on a reservation. But uh, you told me something very interesting earlier today, that 70% of Native Americans now live in cities such as Baltimore, where you are. And that was due to, you know, manufacturing exploding in the 1950s, attracted Native, Amer uh, Native American workers. Tell us a little bit about your organization and uh, what it does. Sure. So first, um, yeah, um, so I'm a board member on the National Council of Urban Indian Health, and our data shows that over 71% of Native people live in cities right now. Um, you know, Native people became urban Indians for a, a lot of reasons. You mean, you, you mentioned the, the kind of draw of industry, but prior to that, I mentioned my family member who went through the boarding school system. There were a series of federal policies that were really designed to move people away from reservations, um, to assimilate them into American culture, to um, just kind of terminate reservations and terminate tribal status. And if you think of it, if there are treaties made with people that obligates the federal government to provide funds or to provide, you know, whatever it is, when you no longer have people who fit those descriptions, then you don't have treaties to honor and you don't have obligations. So and I think that was a really purposeful way um, you know, some people in my family will talk about it as paper genocide. So, you know, early in the Thanksgiving times, they actually killed our bodies. Now they're just trying to find ways to um, do these this legislative genocide or this paper genocide to, you know, make us no longer exist. Because, again, it's, it's helpful to think of American Indian Alaska Native not just as a racial and ethnic designation, but it's, it's a legal and political identity. So um, that's that's where our program fits in. So I'm the executive director of Native American Lifelines. We are an urban Indian health program headquartered in Baltimore, Maryland. We also have an office in um, West Roxbury, Massachusetts that serves kind of the Boston metropolitan area. And we exist to um, help fulfill the treaty obligations that the federal government has to provide health care to urban Indians. And that really came about uh, in 1976, um, Congress passed the Indian Healthcare Improvement Act, um, and the Snyder Act, which is Title V, under which we fall, is a part of that. And that, um, you know, if if you think of Indian health service being tied care tied to reservations, well, if you're moving people off of reservations, then how are they going to access the care that the treaties? you know, are, are obligated to provide to them. So there are different types of urban Indian health programs. There are uh, full ambulatory clinics that are located where there are really large populations like in Seattle or Portland or Denver. Um, and then smaller programs like ours where we don't provide direct medical care, but we, um, you know, do health education. We try to do it in a culturally centered, trauma-informed way. We pay for people to access health care uh, elsewhere. We provide behavioral health services, dental services. So, you know, we're, we are one kind of, you know, just part of that machine that is fulfilling that obligation of the federal government. But it, it's it's not enough. You know, it, it's a 
really kind of messed up system. And I often use the analogy of Cinderella. Like, you know, she goes to the ball, she's in a gown, she's got this coach, everything's great. It's midnight. And all of a sudden she's in rags with a pumpkin and a bunch of rats. Um, it's sort of like that for tribal citizens. When you live on your reservation, you have access to health care. When you leave, depending on where you live, you may not have access to that health care. Your status as a tribal citizen doesn't change just because you've moved, but the way the system is set up, you don't have access to services that are guaranteed to you and to your people through those relationships with the federal government. And so it's really an imperfect system. The other thing that I think is worth noting of the total Indian Health Service budget, which is wildly underfunded anyway, um, the majority of native people live um, off reservation, but only 1% of the IHS total budget is directed to urban Indian health programs. So that's just 1% of the IHS budget that is um, directed to where the majority of people live. And, and so that's, that's a problem. I think, you know, we, you know, we, we talked about women who are in leadership positions. One of the women, um, that I just think is just so inspiring is Amber Torres. She's the tribal chair of the Walker River Paiute tribe. And I attend tribal budget formulation meetings. And, you know, she reminds the Indian Health Service and the federal government that, that all of the wealth that this nation has comes from tribal lands, tribal resources, and tribal people. So it shouldn't be a situation where the IHS is coming to us and saying, okay, we have this X number of dollars tell us how you want to spend it. Um, Chairwoman Torres says, you know, we should be telling you this is what we need. You find a way to get it. And I think those are those are the contentious conversations that are necessary and are starting to happen because our people are engaging in the political process and they're just not going to sit back anymore and and be silent so it's it's really exciting to see so that's that's a little bit about where we fit into the system but yeah our job is to make sure that we are providing uh, in in some way healthcare services to to tribal citizens who are owed that by this government Looking, it's kind of a nice segue, because looking at the state of Native America, what improvements do you think are necessary? What would you like to see going forward to help the people who first settled this land? Honor the treaties is the first step. You know, the federal government has made treaties with Native people, and they need to be honored. A great example of that is, you know, what was happening in Standing Rock that, you know, the the Fort Laramie Treaty set out the boundaries of the reservation, but because the federal government kind of ignored the treaties and chipped away at that over time, that really, I think, gave them a place to say, oh, well, we, you know, we can, you know, bring this, this pipeline through if, if we want to. And, you know, so, honoring the right of the people to say, we don't want this here, this is our land, um, you know, allow us to to not have that. The, the interesting thing also about the, the, the situation in Standing Rock is that the pipeline was supposed to go through other areas like um, Bismarck, where the, the white population there said, we don't want this pipeline, and the pipeline was moved to where the Indians live. So again, that's reinforcing the fact that, you know, Native people don't have value or social status. So, you know, I, I think when Native people are engaged in the political process, we understand that, you know, our voices are, you know, demanding that our sovereignty as Native people is 
respected. I think that can't be understated. You know, the fishing rights, the stewardship of the environment, you know, that's something Native people have really been at the forefront of for, for the reasons that I talked about earlier, that we see this land as being like who we are. I mean, I think about a, a leader like Tecumseh, the Shawnee leader that, you know, he died defending the Ohio River Valley because he really believed that, that you know, this is the land that, that the creator appointed us to exist and, and I'm going to defend it and died believing that we could, you know, could hold that area again. So land has such an important place to us. And if, you know, if, if we have the ability to, you know, have more say in the stewardship of our own lands, ultimately, I think that's better for, for everybody just because of the, the way that Native people think about land as a being and not as a resource to be exploited. So I hope for more Native people to be in government. I hope that there are more allies who are willing to listen to us and to be led and it's not this kind of performative thing like you see a lot of that happen now around thanksgiving that i'm gonna make this donation from my restaurant and then 364 days of the year i'm gonna forget you even exist we need like meaningful sustainable partnerships with people that aren't from our community and i i you know so i'm hopeful that the social and political climate can support that. But gosh, you know, these days, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm trying to be hopeful. There's a long way to go. There's a very long way yeah. to go. And um, we want to thank you, good lady, for joining us on the podcast. You were super informative. It was just really a delight uh, to talk to you about uh, about this uh, this information. Thank you. That sounds beautiful, Carrie. Tell me what that means. So, Wopina uh, Nina Tanka means thank you very much. It is in the Nakoda language. Um, that's the language that uh, my Tugashi, which means my grandfather, really a great grandfather, would have spoken uh, had he not been taken from his reservation uh, and from his Assiniboine Nakoda people to the Carlisle Industrial Boarding School. But the purpose of the boarding school was to kill our languages and to kill everything that made us who who we were. So uh, as a way to honor him and his sacrifice and his very short life, um, I have uh, made it a point to study and to learn his language and to speak it as often as I can as a way to honor him and the fact that he was not allowed to speak that language. So thank you for asking. Wonderful stuff. All right. Thank you again. And we will be back next week with another edition of the weekly Retail Politics Podcast, which you can find at retailpoliticspodcast.com and on Spotify. You can also subscribe on Apple, where you can give us a like or drop us a line. I want to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, and our technical producer, Brad Maybe, who always makes us sound good. I call him the Wizard of Pods. And please pick up my new book, The Front Row, My Jagged Journey, Recording American History from Reagan to Trump, now available on Amazon.com. In closing, we wish you all a very happy and prosperous Thanksgiving to you and your loved ones. And until we meet again next week, always remember to read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.